0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docu-series Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu.
1: This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. Tariq Trotter's life, as he remembers it, starts with a fire. He was six years old, deep in play with his army men those popular plastic figurines from the 70s, when he decided to flick a lighter to add drama to the war scene. When the tip of the lighter got too hot for Tariq's little fingers, he reactively tossed it, the curtains and carpet erupting in flames before engulfing the entire house. In Trotter's new book, The Upcycled Self, a memoir on the art of becoming who we are, the Grammy Award-winning rapper and co-founder of the hip-hop group The Roots, examines the shame of that moment, as well as other harrowing events growing up in Philadelphia, intertwined with joyful moments like discovering music and meeting his fellow bandmate Amir Questlove Thompson. Known by his stage name, Black Thought, Trotter is the lead MC of the Roots, which he and Thompson founded after meeting his teens in high school. Here's one of their first hits from the album Things Fall Apart, You Got Me, featuring Erica Badu.
2: in the same building on the same floor and never met before until I'm overseas on tour and peep this Ethiopian queen from Philly Taking classes abroad, she's studying film and in photo flash focus record. Says she working on a flick and cut my click through the score. She says she loved my show in Paris at Elie Momar. and that I stepped off the stage and took a piece of her heart. We knew from the start that things fall apart, Intense to shatter. She like that it don't matter when I get home, get out of do letter phone. Whatever, let's link, let's get together. This you think not? Think the thought went home and forgot? Time passed, we back in Philly now. She up in my spot, telling me the things I'm telling her.
1: The Roots serve as the house band on NBC's The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. And in addition to his music, Trotter is also a theater actor and writer, having co-written the music and performed in the off-Broadway play Black No More. Tariq Trotter, welcome to Fresh Air.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much, Tanya. Thanks for having me.
1: This memoir is about you going back through your life to understand who you are. And that fire that you accidentally started at six years old, you write that it became the basis of all that you are. But to say that it changed you isn't quite right. It actually shaped the person that you are. What did it shape you into?
2: Um, I think, you know, the fire and that whole experience at such a young age, um, it changed me in that, it jump started. Um it was the beginning of me having to uh to grow up uh, you know, fast. Um yeah, and you know, when I you know, go back in in, in my life and I trace through uh you know, like the, those those watershed moments, and um, I think you know, as a kid, I mean you know i was I was six years old, so there was no way at six for me to really understand the gravity, you know what i mean of 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 it all um and how that's the sort of thing that could carry through through life, you know
1: at the time you were living with your mother and your half brother in a house that your mom had done this amazing job making a home um in North Philadelphia. She did not blame you or scold you, but it was clear that it had changed your family's life. There was very much a before the fire and an after the fire for your family. How, in those immediate days and weeks and and really um, years, did things change for you all? It really destabilized you.
2: Yeah, it definitely, um, it was the beginning of just a more unstable uh, period in, in, in our lives one of the things that—a revelation that 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 occurred post-fire, like right after the fire, was just the fact that, I, you know, I didn't get in trouble. There was no doubt in my mind that I was, you know, going to get it. You know what I mean? I knew that I had really done it this time, and uh, I was expecting, you know, some, if not multiple— uh, manners of, of punishment, right? And um uh, you know, there, there wasn't really a, a reprimand. Like, you know, my mom I mean, obviously now as an adult and as a parent, you you completely understand that uh the only concern would be uh for your, your kid's safety. But in that moment I felt like, wow, you know, she's she's let me slide with this one. But um you know, I think I came to uh like the revelation was um the amount of, of grace, you know what I'm saying, that my that my mother was able to show um, in those moments, right, you know uh, that that felt as as if uh, such a display would, would would be impossible.
1: You talk about how much you had to grow up after that fire. You got your first job at seven years old.
2: Yeah, yeah, I did seven years old. I um was working uh, at a, at an eyeglass uh, for for an optician because I started wearing glasses at around uh, at the age of six or so. And this place, this uh, this optician was uh, along the route, my route, to and from school, um, which, uh, you know, often I would be traveling uh, alone or with, you know, another young five or six-year-old um, kid. It and, really uh, speaks yeah, to the
1: time because— It, it like, really does. It yeah. does,
2: you know, because we would just be out there. Back in the day, your parents would go to work and just, you know, go to school. I hope you make it. You know what I'm saying? Uh, my trek— to school, it was a, it was a couple mile walk, and you know this was you know the winters in in the seventies in the and, and early eighties when it was the real deal, you know, super cold out. And, but yeah, anyway, this guy, this optician, uh, where I would often stop to ask him uh, if he could repair my glasses before um, I got home from school. Um, I think he just, you know, sort of felt the vibe he, like he read the the room of sorts and was, you know, he, he realized that I was a, a latchkey kid who was often, you know, headed home from school to an empty house.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: uh, he provided, um, you know, an alternative and uh, saying, hey, would you would you accept these responsibilities? And would it be OK if I talk to your mom and, you know, figure something out? And he spoke with my mom and, and she was with it. I, I had a job.
1: You write about these times um, so vividly, and you also write about some heavy things that allow us to understand and see you more clearly. In addition to the fire that forever changed you, you also lost both of your parents at a very young age. Your father was murdered when you were a baby, and your mother was murdered when you were a teenager in a very brutal way. Yes. I'm guessing for a very long time, you did not lead with this part of your life. Did
2: Absolutely. people
1: in the entertainment circles and around you know these things about you?
2: Um, I mean, you know, my closest friends definitely, uh, you know, know uh, about my my history and, you know, what my life has sort of been like. But no, I think um, I'm... I'm guarded in that way. I'm such a private person that it's almost as if you, if you weren't there at the time, there's no way that you, uh, you know, you, you'd have any idea. I've never worn my uh, lived experience as that sort of uh, badge, you know, or on my sleeve in that way.
1: What um, do you think that's about holding it so close to you?
2: You know, I think it's, um, it's one of those last. Bastions of, um, you know, of self. Right. I, I think as artists, there's a dance, there's a negotiation that takes place. And, you know, we're this we give so much of ourselves. And that's what becoming an artist and embracing the arts is about. It's about, you know, giving more of yourself. Not that I've never intended to become more personal and more vulnerable and accessible as an artist. But it's the sort of thing that I was holding on to for the right moment, you know what I mean, for when it it made the most sense. Um, And that's right now.
1: You didn't find out right away that your mother had been murdered. Um, You had been living in Detroit and with relatives. You were a teenager and you'd come back to Philly Mm-hmm. and you couldn't find her and so you went out to search for her and one of the places you went to after calling and driving around was the morgue and yep. that's where you found her
2: yeah yeah you know um not me personally but um that's where our family found her and it was um you know one of the sad you know just realities of life um you know in Philadelphia and at the time that, you know, I was, you know, growing up in Philadelphia, I mean, you know, just in the middle of the 80s crack epidemic. And then, you know, immediately after, um, you know, just the the crack epidemic and everything that that took place. Um, yeah. You know, we had normalized lots of, of trauma and lots of, uh, you know, things that, you know, we had gotten used to seeing and experiencing every day. Um You know, it just wasn't necessarily okay and wasn't necessarily normal. And, you know, one of the normal things for us was that, you know, that's what you do. If, uh, you know, someone doesn't show back up home at the end of the night or the next morning or you're trying to track somebody down, first you check the hospitals, you know, see if... You know, maybe they've gotten hurt and wound up in the hospital. Then you check, uh, you know, the jails, see if they have been arrested, and then you check the morgues. And we, in that order, that's what we always did. And that was the process. And then uh, my mother, you know, she would always turn up after a couple days. And uh, this particular time, I think it was something that we all felt, you know, just an eerie feeling. It felt different. And um, once we had found out that there was um, a Jane Doe that had turned up, like an unidentified or, or unidentifiable um, body, I think we all knew that um, or felt that that was uh, my mother. And then my, my grandmother and her sister went and uh, confirmed at the morgue.
1: When you found out your mother was killed, you were in high school, and you had this good friend, Amir Questlove Thompson, what did that friendship mean to you through that time period?
2: Um. Through that time period, uh, you know, Amir and my friendship was uh, was huge. It was um, an anchor for me. You know, th- you know the ways in which he and his family were were there for me. They really had taken me in. We are the dynamic was already one uh, in which I would spend days, weeks at his at a time at his place, and and vice versa. You know, um, we were inseparable in that way as creatives but um the fact that i was able to pour myself completely into my art and um that the music was there for me when i needed it to be and you know just that amir and his family was there for me um it was huge it was just the perfect you know safety net to sort of keep me on the right trajectory because i was very much at a crossroads and um i could have processed that trauma and the experience and the loss in a different way and you know just been they yeah, were at a very different place today.
1: The Roots was also one of the first rap groups to play live music. There are so many elements of jazz. Was it hard for you guys in the beginning? Did record companies know what to do with you?
2: Yeah, no. Record companies had no idea what to do with uh, with The Roots, so yeah, we looked different, we sounded you know, different, you know, I spoke and performed differently. Both uh, Malik and I, uh, the other MC, you know, rest in peace Malik B, the other MC in the roots, yeah. um, you know, spoke differently than um, you know, folks did uh, from places that were, you know, trending more um in the culture. Like, you know, there was a specific way that rappers in the West Coast or from the South or even from New York you know, said things and uh from Philly we just we sounded different. There was no uh there there wasn't Philly wasn't the the incubator for us that it's been for some other artists um, at different points in time.
1: When I look at you guys, I mean you're not just a band. You're you're like a collective um, absolutely we are yeah I mean so in any given iteration there are almost like a dozen members but but there there's also all of these other Connective tissues around Philadelphia of other artists that you all introduced us to, so you oh, yeah. you all basically set that that foundation, that culture that we know of of like this Philly sound of neo soul hip hop.
2: Yes. Yeah, yeah, we did. Um, it began with just jam sessions that we would have um, at Amir's house and or at, you know, our, our manager, again, rest in peace, uh, Rich Nichols at, at Rich's place. And then we wound up arriving at a residency at a place called The Wetlands here in New York City. And then after doing The, the Wetlands for a while, it became so, you know, testosterone-fueled f- and it was just so male energy-dominant that um we we wanted to create another platform just to give uh you know female energy and you know just to give that you know the feminine a place mm. to uh you know to to showcase and 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 perform and that's from that uh, the black lily was born and then that that's really the the beginning of the black lily um was uh you know it ushered in an era can I mean, you describe a black, a black as, lily yeah
1: what what that yeah,
2: is yeah, well, you know, um a black lily uh was the answer to the initial like the original roots jam session where um it's lots of uh improv. It's almost all, you know, think of uh like an upright citizens b- brigade or something for uh you know, but that is for the comedian, right? For the sketch comedian having to uh, you know, just to learn to improvise and create um and entertain on the spot. Um, that's what the Black Lily was. It was a it was an incubator for artists like the the Jill Scotts and uh, mm-hmm. Kindred Family Souls um, mm-hmm. and Music Soul Childs and Belial's, um you know, of the world.
1: Your rap cadence, um, it's always been instrumental, if that makes sense. MCs before you, they had like a maybe like a louder bombastic kind of projection and you're mm-hmm. much more melodic how did you come into your style did you did you ever emulate some of those earlier guys you you talked about Kool Moe Dee when you were really young
2: but yeah 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 I did um I, I've definitely emulated um you know all 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 the greats you know if we're talking cadence then it began it began with the uh, you know Melle Mel Right. And the way that, you know, the Melly Mells of the world sort of spoke, there was a a, a cadence that was it was almost, you know, like your uncle at the barbecue. Right. (laughs) Um, You know, really accessible, easy to to follow along. Um, But even in that, you know, Melly Mel was the first artist to, um, you know, he rapped his cadence was very different from like, say, okay. we begin with the Sugar Hill Gang, right? The way that, mm-hmm. you know, the hip, the hop, the hipper to the hipper, the hip, hip, the hop. You almost got a smile to rap in that cadence, right? And Melly Mel came out and he was, you know, talking about the Bronx and rapping about what was, you know, really going on um, on songs like, you know, The Message. And he was um, emphatic in his uh, expression, you know what I mean? Broken glass everywhere. And you could, it was visual, you know what I mean? The way that the emphasis he put on his words made it possible for you to, to see, what um what he was talking about. And then you had the, uh, you know, Run DMC and those guys came along, mm-hmm. right? You know, through, I guess the connective tissue would be Curtis Blow, right? Who was, you know, the first okay. sex symbol, solo rap star. But, you know, again, he um, didn't rap in the way that, you know, the Melly Mells or the Sugar Hill Gang did. And uh, he introduced us to Run. As his DJ, DJ Run, and then when Run DMC came out, they were almost the antithesis to everything that was happening on the scene before them. I feel like that's what Def Jam and, you know, the people who were associated with Def Jam and and Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin at that time, they all were yelling and screaming. They Mm -hmm. came out and it was like, we're not going to rap the way these other guys rap. Like it was Public Enemy, Beastie Boys. Uh, uh, you know, uh, even you know Tila Rock, LL Cool J, Run DMC, who they weren't Def Jam artists, but they were part of that movement. Yeah. Um, and then you had artists like uh, you know, Rockem and Big Daddy yeah. Kane and Cool G Rap, who came out and for them it was more, it was about more nuance. And in particular, um, I think that's you know, it, it goes for Rockem, who you know, many of us like uh, uh Talu Yasin Bey, Nas. Um, myself, um, is, is, there's a long list of us who sort of trace it back to, you know, nice. to him. You know, what I mean, yep. yeah, to to the influence of of uh, of Rockem. He was one of the first MCs who said, "I know everyone else is screaming and yelling to get their points across. Everyone else is going to be super emphatic. I'm going to articulate my my." instrument as such. I'm gonna use my voice like an instrument. And um, you know, he he had a, a jazz background. I think uh Rakim, you know, grew up playing uh you know, trumpet or sax and his brother also um was a jazz musician, his, his his older brother and um he approached his his cadence and his storytelling and his songwriting from that perspective. And I think that was, you know, some of the earliest signs of that. And that's what, you know, it's a tool that um, I still uh you know employ today.
1: Well, to give an example of, of your instrument, how you use it, I want to play one of your more recent songs, which is a, a personal track about your life and family, and it, it is called Fuel. Let's listen to it a little bit.
2: I'm in Ernest Hemingway portrait Painted by Ernie Barnes Clean sneakers and dirty horns Last soldier of 30 gone Who lost hope but still journeyed on Yet I'm the reason we gonna have to get the gurney form Karma police carrying Customized cuffs for me I hope these taped up guns are still bust for me I had the whole world It wasn't enough for me It got me feeling like the Lord lost trust for me I made a means to an end When there were no wins I burnt bridges I'd sworn to be eternal friends, the last ones I ever intended to turn against, until we grew our separate ways like fraternal twins, so to the chosen few with whom I need to reconcile, my mother's mother, my only brother, my second child, I've always loved you, although that was fairly said aloud, so take forever, I guess, better late than never proud, Listen.
1: That was fueled by Tariq Trotter, also known as Black Thought, the co-founder of the rap group The Roots. He's written a new memoir titled The Upcycled Self. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. This is Fresh Air.
2: identify with the dead or the living i don't know maybe my people set up to fall yeah. like a domino america the beautiful go ask Mo. what's the worst they could do to you i bet my mama know i bet my father know your honor throw the book at us even if justice wasn't
0: blind. this message comes from npr sponsor hulu don't miss the new docuseries black twitter a people's history from onyx collective and hulu Support for NPR and the following message come from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. International travel can be life-changing, but an unexpected emergency can make your trip memorable for all the wrong reasons. Allianz Travel Insurance provides benefits for medical emergencies, trip cancellations, travel delays, and more. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com.
1: I'm Anne-Marie Baldonado from Fresh Air. You already know that our show has been around for more than 40 years. And even for us, we love to listen back to our interviews with some of the biggest voices in pop culture. Voices like this one from our latest Fresh Air Plus bonus episode.
2: I think I had my best conversations with the dog, who was a good friend of mine and didn't challenge me in any way. (laughs) And I I, I certainly let let the family know what what my needs were. Um, Um, But when strangers came to the house, uh, the mute happened.
1: That's James Earl Jones in conversation with our host, Terry Gross, more than 30 years ago, speaking about his childhood stutter. You can hear what that meant to Jones for yourself and hear all of our episodes sponsor-free by becoming a Fresh Air Plus supporter at plus.npr.org. Today we're talking to Grammy Award-winning rapper and performer Black Thought, also known as Tariq Trotter, about his new memoir, The Upcycled Self, a memoir on the art of becoming who we are. Trotter is the lead MC of The Roots, which he and Amir Questlove Thompson founded after meeting as teens in high school. The group has won three Grammy Awards and is known as one of the top rap groups of all time. The Roots also serves as the house band on NBC's The Tonight Show, starring Jimmy Fallon. In addition to his music, Trotter is also a theater actor and writer, performing in the 2022 off-Broadway play Black No More. What's your writing process? Are you putting your rhymes to paper from the start, or does it just start with an idea and a freestyle?
2: Um, you know, the process is different from song to song, Um I'm constantly jotting down ideas, um a word here, um, you know, a couplet there. But um, yeah, for, for the most part, you know, my the writing process is um yeah, you know, I sit down and I try and think of uh, you know, just different ways to either add on to or to, you know, continue to articulate the uh, just my origin story you know um sometimes i'll I'll get the, I'll hear a, a bit of music and I'll sit with the music for uh for days weeks months at a time um before some lyrics will come write a song will eventually write itself after the 20 30 fortieth time that I've decided to sit and listen to this um this idea and then other times um you know I'll get thirty two forty you know fifty Bars will just come uh, without any sort of a uh, musical inspiration. Then I have to find, you know, a, a, a fitting composition. You know, the best place for for these words to sort of live. So yeah, I'm uh, I'm just I'm pulling my ideas out of the ether. Uh, you know, I'm, and I try and just remain dialed in, tapped in, attentive, um, alert, aware, conscious enough to. Um, you know, to receive that inspiration and to recognize it when it comes because it's all around you. Uh, so everything is a song, right? You know, so um, it's just about, you know, recognizing the gold.
1: You went quest love, I mean you guys have been thickest thieves since high school, but you yeah. do tell this one story of a fight that you guys had that sort yeah. of changed your relationship. You've always been thickest thieves, but it sort of put like a little something on the relationship.
2: It did, it did, you know. Um, yeah, you know, we had a brief sort of uh, a, sc- a scuffle, kerfluffle, you know, a little thirty second altercation. Um when we were young and uh you know, but we'd already just
1: starting out, yeah. Yeah, you guys we were young,
2: like we were touring. just starting out, we were, you know, uh displaced living in uh, in London. And, um, yeah, there was, there was just lots of, uh, of angst and anxiety associated with all the, you know, all the energy associated with, um, you know, anyone's first time putting out, um, you know, a record, you know, a new record deal and just the unknown, all of the unknown that was associated with that. So, um... Yeah, you know, just a perfect storm of events, you know, it led to us coming to blows right quick. And it was a sort of thing that, um, you know, it was over. I've given, you know, I've forgotten about it before we left the place that, you know, that had taken place. But I, I, I think it's the sort of thing that, um, yeah, it, it stuck with him in, in a different way, you know. Um, does he hold, is, is it a grudge that he's held? I don't think so, but I definitely don't think it's something that he, uh, you know, has ever forgotten. You know what I mean? Well um, he said if, to
1: you, like, he's over it. But and when yeah. you say you had a scuffle, you guys literally had a little bit of a physical altercation. And yeah, um yeah. he but but you've also seen him have like these deep connective relationships with other MCs in the way that you all had that There's a little bit, a little part of you that feels like, was it because of that fight that, like, we aren't as connected as now he's connected to other people?
2: Yeah, yeah, I do. You know, there's a bit, you know what I'm saying, when someone is one of your closest friends or someone who you, you know, you feel, uh, you know, is a brother, is a friend, is a comrade, is a collaborator. When there's that many levels to one's connection with someone or to someone, um, yeah, you know, we can, you you can get, uh, you know, possessive. Uh, you know, selfish, jealous—like all of those are, are real feelings, and um, it, it are valid. You know, so yeah, there's there's been times, there are times when I feel all all of that sort of thing.
1: Well, Questlove has actually said that Jimmy Fallon is kind of responsible for rekindling your friendship because he says that when you all were offered the opportunity to be the house band for the show. You guys had kind of lost the magic of your friendship. This is like the mid two thousands. Is that how you remember
2: it? Um, I don't remember us as having lost the magic um, as much as uh, you know we were getting tired. I definitely re- recall that. I think um, you know at the point that which you know we met Jimmy, we we had hit a stride of you know consistently two hundred plus shows. Uh, year and all around the world and just lots of traveling and we just started to make a little bit of money but there was also um, lots of uncertainty associated with just that period right Um, there was a bit of a hamster wheel feeling you know what I mean Um, Mm -hmm. a groundhog day of it all Um, you know what could we do differently you know how long uh, would we be able to sort of keep up at this or at that Pace, yeah. You know, th- those were all questions that I, I recall posing to uh, to myself and you know, and to to uh, to Rich and, and, and Amir. Um, but yeah, you know, the fact that once we started doing the uh, at the at the time with what was uh, late night with Jimmy Fallon, um, you know, just having to spend time together every day in some way, shape, or form, and being on stage together every day, um, it was different, and it was uh, it brought us together. Uh, in a different way than, than touring had because we reached a point in our career where we could afford separate tour buses, separate, you know, dressing rooms and stuff like that. And I, though, I think, you know, that definitely contributed to, uh, is part of what, you know, contributes uh, to our longevity, right? If you ask him t- today, he'll say, Oh, separate tour buses. That's why, you know, the roots is, is still mm-hmm. here. But, um, yeah, so I think there's a, uh, you know, a gift in that, in that, uh, you know, ability to sort of spread out a little bit. There is a there is a, a, yeah, a gift and a curse together. that lies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. You know,
1: you're an old hat now at the Tonight Show gig, but did it take you a moment to to like get into? It's almost like it's a regular job that you have to be at every day. And when you're touring, when you're a musician, it's you're you kind of have an entirely different life where you're on the road, but you've got to be there every single day basically or every day of taping
2: yeah Yeah, five days a week we're there and um you know yeah it took some getting used to um it's just sort of you know it was it was like a giving up our touring schedule and like trading it for this uh you know the shooting schedule there um but you know the body and the mind just still you know having that desire to to you know to go right <laughs> to to travel mm-hmm. um so yeah it took a while to just get used to you know the 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 routine of it all um but again you know you talk about you know gifts and i think there's more upside to you know, us having this regular like this nine to five this day "Quote unquote day job, um, if you will, then uh, then downside to it. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm able to spend more time with my family. You know, I come home to my to my kids every night, and you know, get to see my wife more. Um, yeah, in the roots, um, we just the." the depth of our connection as as musicians as performers as as brothers and again just as comrades um i think is uh is unmatched and there's so much like i've always wanted to have that thing with uh you know with the group with the crew with the gang a band where we're able to communicate um without words right there's so much that's just unspoken like uh, and it's uh it's um it's a luxury to have someone that uh, that understands uh what it is that you're trying to articulate without it having to be a uh, to be said and um Amir and I have that um you know Kamal and I have that um it's a bond that I uh, that I'm able to enjoy with uh, or experience you know with uh, with uh, with members of the roots and uh, I appreciate it you know what I mean? it's something that I cherish
1: let's take a short break if you're just joining us my guest is Tariq Trotter also known as Black Thought co-founder of the Grammy award-winning group, The Roots. He's written a new memoir about his life called The Upcycled Self. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. This is Fresh Air.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series filled with hope and possibility about where people are today and what could come next. From tech to tradition, from climate to culture, from science to spirituality. Join futurist Ari Wallach on a journey around the world as he meets the brilliant minds and brave pioneers remaking people's futures for generations to come. A brief history of the future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. This message comes from NPR sponsor, MassMutual. According to calendar.com, the average person schedules just 4.5 hours per year on finances. MassMutual gets it. Life is busy. If you can't find time to plan your financial future, find someone who can, like a Mass Mutual financial professional. For the last hundred and seventy years, they've helped people plan for retirement, college tuition, and any other short or long term financial goals. Learn more at MassMutual.com.
1: I read somewhere that older hip hop artists are right in this moment getting more work than younger rap artists these days. I think that's pretty interesting. Maybe it's because we're nostalgic and we're in the 50th year of hip hop and like we we want to see shows that really speak to yep. that. The people with the money are middle-aged and they're going to these shows. Yep. But I'm really curious about your assessment of the music today. One thing that one p- kind of music that it seems like every time it comes up people have polarizing thoughts about is drill music. Um mm-hmm which for those who don't know drill music is kind of this subgenre of hip-hop out of Chicago that's really popular. What is your assessment of the music today, the hip-hop world and music today?
2: Um, I mean, you know, my assessment is that um, it continues to grow. I think there's more variety out there, uh, you know, musically um, than ever, right? So um, you talk about, you know, sub and you know, the drill musics and then, you know, sub-genres that those sub-genres sort of spawn. And I, I think there's space for um, it all to exist, you know. Um, in that, do I, I mean, I think, you know, there's lots of rappers, there's MCs. I think a rapper and an MC are two different things. But again, I think there's space for both to exist. Uh, and how this so? Culture.
1: Can you describe the distinction?
2: I mean, I think, you know, in, in brief, I think uh, an MC is more uh, an MC is you know more concerned uh with acknowledgement of the foundation and that from which it came and MC is more concerned with something um you know cultural with hip hop as a movement as opposed to um you know something more surface i think a rapper raps and MC um you know has been bestowed with and you know has accepted the The responsibility and the honor that comes with you know becoming a griot or a bard of sorts, right? Um, A truth teller, one of the people who you know it's your job to let us know what's going on. You know what I'm saying? Um, An MC, that's what an MC lets you know what time it is. You know what I'm saying? And a rapper raps. You know what I'm saying? There's some MCs who rap, and there's you know some rappers who rap just as well as MCs. But yeah, I think there is a you know there's there's a, a distinct difference.
1: How do your kids view your music? You've got a couple.
2: Yeah, I've got a couple kids. Um, Most of my kids, you know, they like my music. They're into it. Uh, My older kids, you know, who are teenagers, 17, um, you know, ranging from 17 to 23 at this point. Um, yeah, you know, they love my music. I think they like it fine, but um, they're into, I, th- I wouldn't say they're into my music. I think they appreciate it. But what draws young people into music, what drew me into hip hop was that it was, uh, you know, spoken in a language that, you know, people who were 30, 40, 50 years old didn't understand. So that's the mm-hmm. whole point. It's about be- us being able to communicate, you know, with one another um you know in 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 an authentic way so uh yeah i do, i don't understand all the drill music or all all the hip hop music that young people are are creating today because it's not for me i don't i don't think it's my place to to understand it but um i appreciate it and i respect it and i remember when i was a young person and you know how you know people didn't understand what i was saying if i played yeah. some of my if i played you know organics you know at the time for someone who was they may have liked the music they may have appreciated the the live instrumentation of it all like oh wow this is cool i can get into that jazz music but then it would always get to some point where they say well i don't know what the dude is talking about on there Who does, that's you talking about you know what i'm saying uh so it's the same thing you know this yeah. is uh you know we've We've become our parents and grandparents at this point, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, yep. yeah, yep. I say that to say it's it's not all for us.
1: Your kids are living a def- very different life than than you uh, lived um, as a young person in Philadelphia, and that's a positive thing. I mean, you write about it in your book. Um, do they know about your story and the different parts of you, and how how has it felt? If so, to be able to share those things with them.
2: My kids don't really know. I don't think they know about my story as as much as they, you know, could or should. Um, but, again, it's, I haven't really impressed it upon them either, right? You know, um, because it's not the sort of thing that I've worn on my sleeve. They just, uh, I mean, I don't know. You know, you, I guess we, the ways in which we, we protect our, our kids, um, you know, Sometimes we withhold information. And I talk about this in the book, about how I'm still, you know, trying to figure out information, receiving information about exactly what, you know, what exactly happened uh, in the the case of my father's murder. Right. So um, I think they're going to continue to, uh, you know, to hear sort of again about the pieces of the puzzle that, you know, make me. And um, I think over time they'll get into it. Uh, I think they'll appreciate the fact that, uh, yeah, I was able to tell this story. Um, you know, but probably further down the line. You know, right now my kids they they it, they feel oblivious to uh, to a lot of uh, what's going on, a lot of what's happened in my life, and a lot of you know what's happened in the world. And I think there is a you know there's a certain level of of uh, of of Privilege and, and and you know associated with that with that the bliss of that ignorance you know what I mean and uh, mm-hmm. sometimes I find myself you know just wishing they had it just a, a, a tougher way to go you know uh,
1: do you feel good though that you've been able to provide them with that privilege
2: I definitely feel good that I've been able to provide them with that privilege um, you know in, in in many ways you know what I'm saying because uh, I never you know as as a kid. Yeah, I didn't know what I was going to wind up doing or how long I was going to even, you know, live, <laughs> right? Uh, that's what, the sad truth. Lots of us didn't think we we couldn't see ourselves making it past 25 or 30 just because we didn't know that many people who had, you know. And then the people, you know, it was almost as if a generation— uh, had been skipped because I knew people who were my grandparents' age, and I, I had you know, friends and classmates who were my age. But you know, the drug epidemic in the '80s took a whole generation of people out of here. So it was like, you know, oh, will you see yourself at 30? And I would say, who, who's 30? Like, who made? It? I don't mm-hmm. know who's who made it to 30. You know what I mean?
1: Tariq Trotter, thank you so much for this conversation.
2: Oh no, thank you, Ty. This has been a great conversation, and. Uh, yeah, I'm excited. I'm, I'm, I can't wait to hear this.
1: Tariq Trotter, a.k.a. Black Thought, on his new book, The Upcycled Self, a memoir on the art of
2: becoming who we are. Knocked up nine months ago, and what she finna ask she don't know. She want neo-soul, and hip hop old. She don't want no rock and roll. She want platinum ice and gold. She want a whole lot of sun to fall. If you an obstacle, just drive you just drop your cold, cause one month you don't stop the show, little In these streets she done ran ever since when the heat began.
1: Coming up, TV critic David Bianculli reviews a new HBO documentary about Albert Brooks. This is Fresh Air.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community.
1: My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women
3: study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the
1: unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer.
0: To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. TeleDoc Health understands whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight. TeleDoc Health can help. Visit TeleDocHealth.com/slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T E L A D O C Health slash What's Your Why.
1: On Saturday, November 11th, HBO premieres a new documentary directed by Rob Reiner. It's called Albert Brooks, Defending My Life, and it's about a subject Reiner knows well. Our TV critic David Bianculli has this review.
3: Rob Reiner and Albert Brooks have been friends since high school. Both had fathers who were comedians, and both made their own marks in comedy as young men on television. Reiner wrote for the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, then co-starred on All in the Family. Albert Brooks did guest spots on dozens of TV variety and talk shows, killed on multiple appearances on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show, then wrote and starred in short comedy films made for a new late-night show called Saturday Night Live. Eventually, both of them made movies. Reiner directed This Is Spinal Tap and Misery and The Princess Bride. Brooks Wrote, directed, and starred in such classic comedies as Real Life, Modern Romance, Lost in America, Mother, and Defending Your Life. And now, all these decades later, Rob Reiner has directed a biographical documentary about his old friend. Its title is Albert Brooks' Defending My Life. It premieres on HBO, and it's terrific. The only thing wrong with it is that it's not twice as long. Not that it isn't thorough or doesn't take its time. Defending My Life starts out by having Reiner and Brooks sitting in a plush booth at an L.A. restaurant, just talking casually. It's the ease with which they converse, swapping and sharing stories, admitting very personal details, that makes this such an intimate experience. It's almost like you're eavesdropping, and the conversation is always as interesting as it is unforced.
0: We've been friends for like almost 60 years and it's, which is ridiculous in and of itself. That is ridiculous. But I'm going to do something to embarrass the hell out of you at, at the beginning and then we'll go from there. Okay. I've always looked up to you. I'm, th- I'm telling you the truth. Oh my God. I've always looked up to you because to me, there was nobody that did did what you could do, uh, you know, with, with comedy. I just, and I've always been kind of a little bit intimidated by oh. you.
3: Look but at this. Uh, it, took, it took this to finally hear a <laughs> In addition to talking to the subject of his documentary, Rob Reiner also talks to fellow comics, all of whom discuss Albert Brooks with lavish and insightful praise. David Letterman, Conan O'Brien, John Stewart, Larry David, Judd Apatow, Sarah Silverman, Chris Rock... And filmmakers like James L. Brooks, who directed Albert Brooks in Broadcast News, and Steven Spielberg, who used to film Albert Brooks in 8mm home movies when they were younger, just for the fun of it. And then, finally and much too briefly, there are the clips. And before we even get to the movies, Reiner gives us some samples of his friend's outrageously inventive and loony TV appearances. What Andy Kaufman and Steve Martin did to redefine comedy in the 1970s, Albert Brooks was doing as far back as the late 60s. One insane bit I saw on the Carson show back then and never forgot is sampled here. Brooks sits next to Johnny Carson and unveils his new home comedy kit, where you use the bits of food and spices provided to perform your own celebrity impersonations. He brings Carsons to tears by showing how sniffing a little dash of pepper, then popping a small piece of hot potato into your mouth, can lead to a perfect impression of one of the three stooges. A hot hot, hot hot potato. 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 (laughs) Curly, as you take a little bit of pepper, a little bit of pepper. You know Curly, the great three stooge, Hard to do, not now. Take a pepper, put put it like that. Okay, now. You begin to make a child's train
0: noise. (laughs) Woo! Woo! (laughs) In with a potato! Woo, Woo! Woo!
3: Brooks tells wonderful stories about these appearances, and about SNL, and about his films. And even his kids get to tell funny stories, including one about hearing their dad's voice coming out of one of the animated fish in Finding Nemo. But there's insight here, too. As when Brooks explains his career choices as being something other than choices. I had a very famous agent, and he said to me, I don't know why you always take the the hard road. And my answer was, you think I see two roads, and I don't. If there was an easy road, I'd have a house there. I said, what do you think, I get up? I can't wait for the damn trouble I'm going to get into. I said, I don't see, I see one road. In saluting and celebrating his friend Albert Brooks, Rob Reiner has made a delightful documentary, one that makes you want to take a deep dive into the comedy films of Albert Brooks. I urge you to do it. And to start with Lost in America, one of the funniest films I've ever seen. Especially when it gets to the part about the $100,000 box. David
1: Bianculli is professor of television studies at Rowan University. He reviewed the new HBO documentary called Albert Brooks, Defending My Life. On the next Fresh Air, Barbara Streisand. and her new memoir, she writes about everything from her mother's constant criticism, her Broadway shows, and why she never did more. She also shares why she asked Stephen Sondheim to rewrite lyrics for her and why she stopped performing for many years. I hope you can join us. To keep up with what's on the show and to get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Roberta Sharrock directs the show.
0: For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mook. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viori.com/npr Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths,
1: a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Obviously.